Warning, the content of this podcast may be disturbing and graphic. It may contain explicit details, discussions of crime scenes, and descriptions that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. At 10.17 on the morning of December 28, 1987, dispatcher Donna Stobaugh received a frantic emergency call from the Peel and Eddie Law Firm in downtown Russellville, Arkansas. It was the law office's secretary, and she described to Donna in a panic that a man had entered the firm through the front door and shot Kathy Kendrick, a 24-year-old receptionist who worked there. Donna wasn't getting very much information from the secretary. She just kept saying, Kathy, Kathy. And when Donna tried to ask the secretary if Kathy was still alive, she just kept telling her, I don't know. In 1987, 911 did not yet exist in Arkansas. So it was Donna's job to direct EMTs and police to the location of the shooting. And she did just that. The young receptionist was transported to the nearest hospital, but she was later pronounced dead. David Eddy, one of the partners at the law firm, was there that morning, and he would later describe the scene to Tony Holt of the Arkansas Gazette for their story, The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. That morning, David had walked to the end of the hall to pour himself a cup of coffee, And when he turned around, he met Kathy and just about spilled his coffee on her. He apologized and made his way back to his office while Kathy headed back to the lobby, where there was one female client waiting to be seen. When she got back to the reception desk, a man entered the lobby through the front door and walked right up to her. She didn't immediately look up, but when she did, Her gaze was met by this man, and the barrel of a gun. The man fired straight into Kathy's head, and as she fell back into her chair, he fired three more times. David heard the unmistakable loud shots of gunfire and peeked his head out of the door to see what had just taken place in the lobby of his law firm. He met the gaze of his secretary, who had also heard the shots and was poking her head outside of the door across the hall. But they both knew that if they left their offices, they would come face to face with a shooter. So they closed their doors nervously and considered their options. As David tried to work up the courage to confront the gunman, he heard the front door open and close again. And he decided that the coast must be clear. As he opened the door to his office, he assumed that he would find the female client lying in the lobby. But to his surprise, she was still sitting there, frozen in fear. It was his receptionist, Kathy, who was on the ground behind her desk, bleeding profusely from bullet wounds to the head. 
as the secretary calls police dispatch, David began to tend to Kathy's wounds. He looked up and out of the front window to see a Toyota peeling out of the parking lot. He didn't get a good look at the driver, but he could see that the man was wearing a white cowboy hat. Less than 20 minutes later, dispatcher Donna Stobaugh received another call from a woman at the Taylor Oil Company, which was located only a mile away from the Peel and Eddy law firm. The caller, Julie Money, frantically relayed that a shooter had entered Taylor Oil and shot several people. Her voice shook as she breathed heavily, as she described that she thought she felt a bullet whiz through her hair. That day had been her first day of work at Taylor Oil. When she got in that morning, she smiled at one of the part-time drivers that worked for the company, 33-year-old James Chafin, who was known by the nickname JD. The owner of Taylor Oil, Rusty Taylor, was sitting in his office which was visible from the entrance and had his office door ajar. Around 10.20 a.m., a man entered the lobby. When this man saw Rusty through his open office door, he raised a gun and fired at him, hitting Rusty twice, once in each shoulder. Julie was just coming out of the bathroom when she heard the loud bangs coming from the lobby near Rusty's office. She caught the eye of the driver, JD, and put her hands up as if to ask him, what the heck was that? JD just shrugged and began to open the office door, but as he did so, Julie saw the gunman raise his weapon and shoot JD right through the eyes, a shot that would kill him instantly. Julie would later say that the gunman had an awful, mad dog grin on his face as he turned the gun toward her. She dove to the ground as he fired in her direction and felt the bullet whiz through her hair. As she laid there, face down on the ground, she wasn't sure if she'd been hit. She felt the back of her head but couldn't feel any blood. Julie caught a glimpse of the gunman as he exited and she knew she needed to get help right away. That is when Julie called dispatch and described the scene to Donna Stobaugh. Donna asked for a description of the shooter. It was not common for her to receive calls about a shooting, let alone two in one day, and she wondered if the two shootings could be related. Julie described the man as wearing a white cowboy hat, and she had seen him drive away in a copper-colored Toyota Corolla. At this point, Donna realized that the man who had shot Rusty and JD at Taylor Oil was the same man who had shot Kathy Kendrick at Peel and Eddy Law Firm earlier that morning. Unfortunately, 33-year-old JD lost his life that day, but Rusty Taylor was brought to the hospital and would survive his injuries. At 10.39 a.m., Donna received a third call about a shooter at the Sinclair Mini Mart, just three miles east of Taylor Oil. One of the Mini Mart employees, Roberta Woolery, watched as one of her former coworkers, Ronald Jean Simmons, entered the station and walked straight past her. She noticed that he was carrying a pistol and he was headed straight to the back 
where she knew that her boss, David Salyer, was sitting with a friend having a cup of coffee. Simmons raised the pistol and fired at David, who ducked as the bullet flew past him. He wasn't sure if it was some kind of prank or if this was real gunfire. Roberta screamed as she reached for the phone, which caused Simmons to turn toward her and fire two shots. One hit her in the chin, the other hit her in the shoulder. David rushed at the shooter, wielding a chair as the only weapon he could find. And as he did so, Simmons shot him in the head. He fell to the ground. The friend that David had been having coffee with grabbed whatever he could find, which happened to be a six pack of soda, and threw it at Simmons, who fired a few shots in his direction as he turned to leave. Roberta begged Donna to send help as she and David were bleeding profusely. Donna assured her that she had somebody on the way and asked if Roberta could describe the man to her. Roberta said, I know who he is. He is Ronald Gene Simmons. Everybody that had been at the Sinclair Mini Mart that day would fortunately survive their injuries. And now, Donna had a name to pass along to authorities. But she would receive a fourth and final emergency call that morning. After leaving the Sinclair Mini Mart, Gene Simmons had made his way to Woodline Motor Freight, where he had once been an employee. It was there where he had met receptionist Kathy Kendrick, who also worked there at the time. Simmons had grown fond of Kathy, but she found him to be creepy and reported his actions to their boss, Joyce Butts. Joyce had reprimanded Simmons, and now she was his final target. He entered the building, and when he saw her, he pulled his gun from his pocket and fired, hitting her in the head and chest. Vicki Jackson, who was working nearby, heard the shots. As she was about to make her exit, she ended up face to face with Gene Simmons. But Simmons told Vicky that he didn't want to hurt her. In fact, he was ready to turn himself in. He requested that she call an ambulance for Joyce. Vicky asked him what was going on. She tried to make sure that he remained calm. Simmons told her that he had just wanted to kill Joyce and now he was done. He wanted to surrender peacefully. Vicky relayed this information to Donna, who directed police towards Simmons's location in the building. When police arrived, Simmons handed over his weapons. He was handcuffed and brought to Pope County Jail. As far as they were concerned, Simmons's rampage was over. And it was. Joyce would miraculously survive her injuries as well. All of that shooting left just two people dead, J.D. Chafin and Kathy Kendrick. But what police did not know was that Simmons had many more victims, 14 more, and they would soon learn the extent of Ronald Gene Simmons's depravity. Ronald Gene Simmons, also known as Gene, 
was born in Chicago, Illinois on July 15, 1940, to Loretta and William Simmons. When he was just three years old, his father died of a stroke, and less than a year later, Loretta remarried a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and the family moved to Little Rock, Arkansas. Jean was a difficult child. He was known as somewhat of a bully and loved to question authority. This behavior got him kicked out of several boarding schools in his early childhood. When he was just 17 years old, Jean dropped out of high school and enlisted in the Navy. He craved the strict schedule and guidelines that the military offered and thrived in this environment. After enlisting, Jean spent 19 months in Guam, where he earned his GED. Once back in the States, he was stationed at the Bremerton Naval Base in Washington State, where he met 18-year-old typist Becky Uliberry. He was attracted to her dark eyes and long, dark hair, and he began flirting, eventually challenging her to a speed typing contest. He won, but Becky was smitten, and the two began dating. They married on July 9th, 1960, Becky's 19th birthday. Jean then left the Navy and enlisted in the Air Force, which would take him to Vietnam. During this time, the couple would have their first three children, Jean Jr., Sheila, and Billy. But upon his return from Vietnam, Jean's behavior became controlling and he was frequently angry. Shortly after his return, he was sent to England for a three-year assignment. There, his fourth and fifth children, Loretta and Eddie, were born. Next, he was sent to Alamogordo, New Mexico, where he would work as an NCO officer for the Space and Missile Systems Organization, or SAMSO. Gene thrived in the position and was very fond of the area. He enjoyed the fact that the area was remote and considered it to be a good place to build a home and raise his family. But they had rented a home with close neighbors, and Jean was not pleased with having people so close. His in-laws, Becky's parents, had a nice remote farm just across the border in Colorado, and Jean preferred that kind of living. They would eventually find such a home in a place called Wills Canyon near Cloudcroft, New Mexico, which was located in Lincoln National Forest. It was on three acres of land, not really as remote as Gene had hoped for, but he would make do. There, he would put his children to work, building a stone wall surrounding the property and carrying out other chores on the land. By November 1976, Jean got word that the SAMSO office was going to be staffed by a much smaller, less expensive unit, which meant that he would no longer be working there. During the transition, Becky and the children bore the brunt of Jean's frustration. Bills piled up and his temper grew. The couple's sixth child, Marianne, was also born around this time. When they finally got word that the SAMSO office was officially closing, Jean was transferred to Heman Air Force Base, which was located in the same county in New Mexico. It was not Jean's first choice. 
He had hoped to be stationed in Little Rock, Arkansas, where he remembered growing up. Gene was upset, and he continued to express his frustration by taking it out on his wife and kids. He had struck Becky across the face in front of the children for the first time, and 16-year-old Gene Jr., or Little Gene, could not stand to watch. When he tried to protect his mother, his father beat him to the ground and continued to beat him until he was bloody and bruised. Gene Jr. could no longer stand the abuse. He packed up his things and hitchhiked to his grandparents' home in Colorado, where his mother, father, and sister Sheila would eventually pick him up and take him back to New Mexico. Not only was the physical abuse escalating, but Gene Simmons had also taken an inappropriate sexual interest in his eldest daughter, Sheila. Sheila had always been treated better than her siblings and mother by her father. He called her his little princess. Sheila didn't know why he treated her more kindly than the others, but she didn't mind it because she was spared from the verbal and physical abuse that the others endured. But in 1980, she would take a trip to a coin collecting show in California with her father, and she would learn the reason that he'd favored her above the rest of her family members. The two had to stop at a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona on the way to the show, and this is where authorities believe that Gene sexually assaulted his daughter for the very first time. Social work investigations would show that Gene had sex with Sheila two more times that year, and by March 1981, she realized that she was pregnant. When she told her father about the pregnancy, he sat down with the rest of the family to announce it, telling them that the child would be loved like all the other children, and that was the end of the discussion. He did not discuss who the father was but his wife, Becky, knew. She saw the way that Jean treated Sheila, and Becky confided in little Jean, who wanted to report it. But Becky wished to keep the family together, for now at least. They would lose everything if authorities found out. But little Jean could not stand by and watch as his father got away with incestuous abuse. On April 17th, he anonymously reported his father to social services. The Ottero County School District had also grown suspicious that something was going on in the Simmons household because all of his other kids would ride the bus to school, but Jean would drive Sheila every day and some people had seen him kissing her in the car. School officials also reported what they'd seen to social services, who did eventually launch an investigation into Simmons. The caseworker interviewed Sheila, who admitted that the baby was her father's. When they confronted Jean, he did not deny his relationship with Sheila. He told the caseworker that it was, quote, his fatherly duty and that he had to protect her. Prosecutors were notified, and in order to avoid prosecution, Jean agreed to a psychological counseling program that would last five weeks 
and involve his entire family. But Jean could sense that he would still be prosecuted anyways. Sheila gave birth to their child, Sylvia Gale, on June 17th, and by August 1981, Sheila had to admit in front of a jury that her father had raped her. Authorities were closing in on Ronald Jean Simmons, but when they arrived at his house in New Mexico to serve him a warrant for his arrest, they found the property deserted. He had taken his family in the middle of the night and fled to Dover, Pope County, Arkansas, where they would live for the next six years before his murderous rampage. While some efforts were made by New Mexico law enforcement to find Simmons, the district attorney's office eventually dropped the case because the agency he had been indicted with didn't have the power to arrest him, and it was clear that he had gone. Somebody dropped the ball because state police in Arkansas, who did have the power to arrest, were not notified that a sex offender had moved his family there. Over the next six years, the physical and sexual abuse continued in the secluded Dover home, which the family called Mockingbird Hill. The property was located in an unincorporated community that had only a church, cemetery, corner store, and campground nearby. It was a mobile home with five bedrooms and a small kitchen and living room. It had no indoor plumbing and no phone. In the hot summer heat and humidity, Jean forced his children into manual labor once again on the property, digging ditches, putting up barbed wire, and building a shed. In 1984, Jean's eldest daughter, Sheila, got engaged to Dennis McNulty, a man she had met in business school a year earlier. Jean was very upset with the arrangement. His favorite daughter would be leaving home and Jean would be the only one not smiling in their wedding photos. By the end of summer 1984, the three eldest Simmons children had moved out. Little Jean also got married, and he and his wife were expecting their first child. And Billy had graduated high school, got a job, and moved out. Jean found administrative work at Woodline Motor Freight, and on the weekends, he worked at the Sinclair Mini Mart in nearby Russellville. He met Kathy Kendrick at Woodline Motor Freight and was instantly attracted to her. He even brought her flowers at one point, but Kathy was disturbed by Jean's forwardness and she would complain to her boss, Joyce, who would reprimand Jean. It became clear to Jean that Kathy Kendrick was not reciprocating his advances and he was so upset that he quit his job at Woodline Motor Freight, but he did not stop yearning for Kathy. In fact, he would often park outside of her home in Russellville, watching her. His behavior was growing increasingly bizarre. At home, Jean would hide away inside his room, only leaving to go to work at the Mini Mart. When he did leave, he would lock the door from the outside. Now that they were free from the suffocating grip of their father, the three eldest children would write letters to their mother, Becky, begging her to leave Jean 
In the letters, Becky referred to Jean as Fatso, and it was clear that she was beginning to build up the courage to leave. In one such letter, Becky stated, quote, I've been a prisoner long enough. Bill and I are trying to find a way. I just don't want to give your dad anything. He has mistreated us for so long, so I feel no pity for him, and being alone is what he deserves. All this will take time, but I don't want to continue this life with Fatso. End quote. By 1987, little Jean was engaged for a second time to his ex-wife, and they had a three-year-old daughter, Barbara. Sheila was married to Dennis McNulty, and they lived with seven-year-old Gail, the child that Sheila had by her father, and their biological son, one-year-old Michael McNulty. Billy was married to Renata Simmons, and they had a one-year-old son, Trey Simmons. Little Jean and his daughter Barbara were already at Mockingbird Hill to visit for the holidays, and the rest of the family members were to be joining them within the following days. The four younger Simmons children, Loretta, who was 17, Eddie, who was 14, Marianne, who was 11, and Rebecca, who was eight, were about to be on the holiday break from school. And although they were looking forward to seeing their siblings, nieces, and nephews, they were not looking forward to spending time cooped up at Mockingbird Hill. But none of the children were prepared for what they would come home to find. Earlier that morning, Ronald Gene Simmons armed himself with a 22 caliber revolver and some kind of blunt object that investigators know was over two feet in length. The four youngest children headed off to school and Gene Simmons put his evil plan into motion. Nobody knows the order in which these events took place, but some speculate that Gene first struck his wife Becky with the blunt object knocking her unconscious. He then entered the room where little Jean was sleeping and hit him with a blunt object, once in the head and once in the neck. But these blows did not do much to the burly Jean Jr. The autopsy would show that there was a struggle. Little Jean realized what his father was attempting to do to him and he was ready to fight. But his father had a gun and, realizing that the blunt object was no match for Gene Jr., Gene Sr. pulled out the revolver and shot his son, four times in the head and once in the chest. As he was being shot, little Gene crawled toward the bedroom door, but he would die just before he made it to the hallway. Authorities then speculate that Ronald Gene Simmons came back into the bedroom where his wife Becky and granddaughter Barbara had been. He shot Becky twice in the face with the same revolver, killing her. And when he had finished with Becky, he grabbed some nylon string from his pocket, wrapped it around three-year-old Barbara's neck, and strangled her to death. Later that day, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and Rebecca got off the bus from school. There are also no witnesses to what happened next, so the description I'm about to tell you 
is based on theories and evidence found by authorities. That day, Ronald Gene Simmons came out to greet the children, which was odd because he was normally locked away in his room. He somehow convinced the rest of the children to stay outside, likely telling them that he would come out to get them one at a time. He first led Loretta into the house and forced her into his bedroom, where he attacked her. Her autopsy revealed that she had suffered several cuts to the face consistent with being punched. Simmons then grabbed a nylon fishing cord from his pocket and wrapped it around her neck. It was clear that Loretta struggled to break free from her father's grasp. Her watch and earrings were broken in her attempt to escape. Once she was no longer moving, Simmons dragged her body into the bathroom and submerged her head in a trash barrel filled with water, making sure that she was no longer breathing. He then placed her body on a bed in a neighboring room. One by one, Simmons brought his remaining children into the home and killed them all in the same manner. He strangled them with a nylon string, then submerged their heads into the barrel of water. He then loaded their bodies into a wheelbarrow and wheeled them over to a large hole on the property, a hole that the children had dug themselves and tossed them in. Already inside that hole were the bodies of their mother, Becky, their brother, little Jean, and their niece, Barbara. Simmons doused the bodies in kerosene and laid barbed wire between them. One news broadcast stated that Simmons learned this trick in Vietnam, and it was meant to keep the animals away. He then buried the bodies and placed a thin layer of sheet metal on top of the mass grave. For the next four days, Ronald Gene Simmons rarely left Mockingbird Hill. On December 26th, Gene's son Billy was set to arrive with his wife Renata and son, one-year-old Trey. Again, there are no witnesses to what happened next, but authorities surmise that the family were seated around the kitchen table when Gene approached with his gun. He pointed it at Billy and shot him, once in the cheek and once just below the ear. Billy never saw it coming. The barrel of the gun was just one foot away from his head when he was shot, so it was clear that Gene had caught Billy unsuspecting. Renata screamed in horror at what her father-in-law had just done, and she knew that she and her baby were probably next. She rushed at Jean, attempting to knock the gun away, but her efforts were unsuccessful. Jean would shoot her a total of seven times in the head and neck. He then turned toward the terrified little Trey and pulled the nylon rope from his pocket, wrapped it around his neck, and strangled him to death. To ensure he was truly dead, Jean dunked the child's head into that barrel of water. Next to arrive at Mockingbird Hill were Sheila, her husband Dennis, and her two children, seven-year-old Sylvia and one-year-old Michael. Jean hadn't had time to move the other bodies out of sight, so as Sheila came in through the front door, he immediately shot her six times and she fell dead. 
right by the Christmas tree. The two children had entered with their mother, and little Sylvia ran into one of the neighboring bedrooms to hide. Dennis heard the shots and rushed through the front door where he attempted to fight Jean. But Jean would overpower him, and he shot Dennis in the head, instantly killing him. The only two surviving family members left were Sylvia and little Michael. Jean turned his attention to Sylvia. He found her in the bedroom hiding. He pinned her to the floor with his knees and wrapped the nylon cord around her neck and then did the same to Michael. Jean stuffed the bodies of one-year-old Trey and one-year-old Michael into black trash bags placed them into the trunks of two separate vehicles, and parked the cars near the pit where the rest of the family had been buried just four days earlier. He threw an old winter coat over the body of his son, Billy, which was still laying in the kitchen next to his wife's. Jean covered the other bodies that remained in the home with blankets. Fourteen members of his family were dead. After burying some loading two into the trunks of cars, and covering the rest with coats and blankets, Gene got into his car and drove to Sears, where he picked up Christmas gifts that had been ordered earlier that month. Children's books, a hair crimping machine, a couple of watches, and a radio recorder. He then went to a nearby bar, downed a couple of drinks, and returned home and went to sleep likely exhausted from carrying out 14 murders within five days. But Ronald Gene Simmons wasn't finished. He still had a list of people that had wronged him, and just two days later, he would execute the rest of his plan, killing Kathy Kendrick and J.D. Chafin in a murderous rampage through Russellville. With Jean finally in custody, police didn't know yet that he'd killed his entire family and had their bodies located in various places on his property. During the interview, detectives asked him about his family, but Jean did not reply. He pretended that he didn't even hear them. He stopped talking altogether. Suspicious, they sent a deputy to Mockingbird Hill but he couldn't get a good look inside and he didn't have a search warrant. But there was an unlocked window and looking through, he thought that he could see a body. That coupled with the fact that there were two cars parked on the property that didn't belong to Jean or his wife gave the police probable cause to enter. So on December 28th, 1987, Police entered through that unlocked window, and the first thing they saw was Sheila's lifeless body laying right next to the Christmas tree. They then saw the bodies of Dennis by the front door and Billy and Renata in the kitchen. When the other officers entered, they combed through the house searching for the rest of the family members, but by the end of the day, they hadn't yet found them. They knew that there were probably more bodies, though, because there were bloody handprints on the walls 
and blood splattered on furniture in the bedrooms. The search of the property resumed the next morning. Investigators came across a layer of sheet metal and, as they got closer, they could smell kerosene. When they lifted up the metal, all they could see was barbed wire, but as they tried to pull it up, it was caught on something. It was caught on the body of one of Jean's family members. They would need to use equipment to pull the rest of the barbed wire out of the pit, and when they did, they discovered the bodies of Becky, little Jean, Loretta, Marianne, Eddie, Rebecca Lynn, and little Barbara. Soon, they also discovered the bodies of one-year-olds Trey and Michael in the trunks of the nearby sedans. Back at the station, Ronald Gene Simmons refused to talk. The judge would later order a psychiatric evaluation, but the mental health professional would deem Simmons competent to stand trial. His conversations with his lawyers were protected and confidential, but they would later say that it was clear. Simmons wanted to be convicted, and he wanted to be executed. His first trial took place in May 1988 in a neighboring county, as officials knew that they would not find an unbiased jury in Russellville. This trial was specifically for the charges of the murders of Kathy Kendrick and J.D. Chafin, attempted murders of Julie Money, Rusty Taylor, David Salyer, Roberta Woolery, and Joyce Butts, and the kidnapping of Vicki Jackson. The survivors shared their testimonies with the jury, describing the day's events in disturbing detail. Joyce Butts took the stand with the help of her husband, as she had the worst of the injuries after being shot in the head. She couldn't remember anything leading up to the shooting, except for taking a phone call that morning. The next thing she knew, she was waking up in a hospital bed. After just four days of this first trial, Simmons was convicted and sentenced to death, plus 147 years in prison. And he was actually smiling when he heard the outcome because he wanted to be put to death. In fact, he read a prepared statement shortly after, insisting that he did not want any appeals to the verdict and that he wanted his death sentence to be carried out as soon as possible without any interference. The statement said, quote, I only ask for what I deserve. Let the torture and suffering in me end. Please allow me the right to be at peace, end quote. And with that, his execution was scheduled for June 24, 1988, less than two months after the end of the trial. This left no time to have a second trial for the slayings of his family members. Some members of his extended family and the public were okay with this. Ronald Gene Simmons would be gone from the world soon, unable to inflict any more pain. But others, like Renata's mother, had hoped to see Simmons suffer a little longer in life before being put to death. 
Just a week before his scheduled execution date, the Arkansas Churches for Life filed a petition to the Arkansas Supreme Court seeking a stay of execution and death sentence appeal. Four days after that, the Supreme Court ruled that Simmons be granted a stay of execution, and his new execution date was set for August 9, 1988. But Simmons would not die that day either. As the day approached, a judge ordered him to undergo more psychiatric testing to ensure that he was competent to waive an appeal for execution. Simmons was uncooperative during the testing. The judge did end up ruling Simmons competent to waive an appeal, but this was on the grounds that he stand trial for the murders of his family. So his second trial began February 9th 1989. There was so much security present for the trial. Witnesses said that the packed courtroom was silent, deep in thought as they took in the evidence presented. Many tears were shed as the video footage from the officer's investigation of the home was shown, and as the medical examiner described the extent of the brutality of the murders of the young children. Emotion in the courtroom was high for everyone except Simmons himself. He sat unmoved and stoic as he watched the footage of his family members' bodies being pulled from the pit in his backyard. But in one of the following days of the trial, Simmons unexpectedly lashed out, punching the prosecutor in the jaw and reaching for the gun of one of the officers who tried to tackle him down. He was handcuffed and led out of the courtroom. Simmons would later say that he wanted this to be the last thing the jury saw before deliberating, so it would secure another death penalty conviction for him. And he got what he wanted. He was found guilty and sentenced to death once again. His new execution date was set for March 16, 1989. That day, Simmons was served his last meal, an eight ounce filet mignon, onions, sliced tomato, six rolls, and a couple of seven ups. But as he was beginning to eat, he learned that another stay of execution had been ordered because of a request from a fellow death row inmate who thought that his own chances of appeal would be hindered by Simmons's expedited death. This appeal put Jean's death on hold for another 13 months, but the Supreme Court would finally rule that Jean did, in fact, have the right to waive an appeal, and his execution date was once again set, this time for June 25, 1990. That day, he was served his final meal the same exact meal that he had had when he thought he was going to be executed the first time. After this, Simmons took a nap, and shortly after 8 p.m., he was escorted into the chamber, fastened to the table, and asked for his last words. He would say, Justice delayed is finally done. It is justifiable homicide. And with that, the deadly mixture was sent through his veins. He lost consciousness shortly after, and witnesses remembered a slight twitching before he turned blue 
and was pronounced dead. His reign of terror was finally over. In his wake, he left so much destruction. The family members of his victims and his surviving victims were left with wounds so deep they would never heal. None of his family members would claim his body, and he was buried in a potter's field, a grave for the unknown, in Lincoln County, Arkansas. Seems fitting. Ronald Gene Simmons condemned his family to an early death and buried them in a pit they dug themselves, not knowing it was their own grave they were digging. And now, he is buried in a nameless pit himself, with nobody to visit him. He never told anybody why he killed his entire family and then sought out others in the community who had wronged him. Maybe he snapped. Maybe he found out that Becky had finally decided to leave him. Or maybe he had sunk so far into despair after losing his pride and joy, Sheila, to a husband of her own. Unfortunately, we will never know.